This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, November 22nd. On the pod today, an explosion at a Canada-U.S. border crossing near Niagara Falls. The Minister of Public Safety brings us the latest on the incident at the Rainbow Bridge border crossing. And a verdict for former RCMP intelligence officer Cameron Ortis, guilty on all six counts related to leaking top-secret intelligence information. We'll bring you those details. Plus, Conservatives vote against an upgraded Canada-Ukraine free trade deal, claiming it would impose a carbon tax on Ukrainians. The Liberals say that's absolutely false, and we'll get a sense of what Ukraine makes of the deal. We begin today with breaking news. An explosion at a Canada-U.S. border crossing near Niagara Falls. CBC News has confirmed that two people are dead and that four border crossings have been closed since the explosion. The FBI in Buffalo is leading the investigation into the incident. This all happened on the American side of the Rainbow Bridge border crossing between New York and Ontario. And the CBC's Hillary Johnston has been following this story for us all afternoon and she joins us now. So Hillary, uh, walk us through what, what is the latest uh, on this explosion? Well, David, it was certainly a busy day for security officials on both sides of the border. We know that this reached the highest levels of government in both country, with, of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking about it briefly during question period before he excused himself to be briefed further. We know that U.S. President Joe Biden was also briefed on it. But here's a little bit of what we know. We know that around 1 p.m. Eastern time, so local time, uh, that there was an incident. The FBI field office in Buffalo, New York, uh, came out with a statement saying that they were investigating a vehicle explosion. Of course, that set a whole chain of events into motion. A lot of statements coming out from both sides of the border. Uh, But we did hear from sources on this side of the border that when this was first reported to the Canadian government, that it was operating on the assumption that this might be intentional, possibly even terrorism. Didn't mean it was terrorism, but because this happened at critical infrastructure or involving critical infrastructure, that was the assumption at first. Of course, we have now heard from New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, that it is not believed that this was a terrorist incident. So here's a little bit more of what we heard from the governor just a short while ago. It's so important for me to stand here and tell the world based on what we know at this moment, and again, anything can change, there is no sign of terrorist activity with respect to this crash. But we do know that two people are dead. In terms of what happened exactly, why it happened, that's still something that we don't know. And certainly what officials have been telling us uh, is that because that vehicle is so badly burned that it could take a while to learn more. We do know, of course, uh, just a short while ago on your show, Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc saying that he was in touch all day with his U.S. counterpart, the head of U.S. Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. We also know that the Transport Minister was in touch with his counterpart, the Transport Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. So, uh, a lot of back and forth between security officials and government officials throughout the day, David. And Hillary, we, we know I saw some video earlier from a witness who, who, who saw some of this and kind of described exactly what we're seeing now. Uh, so what are we hearing from, from these witnesses? A car through the air. That was yeah. exactly what we heard from that witness. A vehicle flying through the air. And some of the other things that we heard included a fireball, that there was a lot of fire after all of this happened, uh, which of course would explain why we started to hear from the FBI, for example, that they were investigating a vehicle explosion. We are on the cusp of the U.S. Thanksgiving weekend. You can just imagine uh, some of the travel plans that have possibly been disrupted, that cross 
cross-border uh, activity as well that has now been disrupted. When is that border point going to reopen? That we don't know. We do know that three of those other international crossings in that Buffalo, Niagara area have now reopened. But some of those eyewitnesses, like you're saying, David, describing quite a scene. Here's a little bit of what we heard from one Canadian resident who is on the American side in Niagara Falls. And he told us what he saw. So we were walking up the road and we seen this car coming down towards the border and he was flying over 100 miles an hour. There was a car in front of him. He swerved out, went in front of the car, hit the fence, went flying up into the air. He had to, I think there was an elevation part. He went up into the air and we just seen the fireball and that's all we could see. It was just covered in smoke everywhere. So the car was coming from the U.S. into Canada? towards Canada? Yes, it was going towards Canada, yes. Looked like it hit part of the fence because it's all damaged. And then it went elevated up, and then it went up into the air, and then it was just a fireball and smoke everywhere. I've never seen anything like this. It was just incredible. The, the fire was so high up in the air. So, David, you heard him talk about that fireball. You also heard him talk about how what he saw was his vehicle traveling from the U.S. on the U.S. side sort of towards Canada. And certainly what we have heard uh, from Canadian government sources now is that they are highly confident that all of this took place on the U.S. side of the border. The incident itself, that the vehicle originated on the U.S. side of the border. Still a lot of questions, of course. Who was involved? Why? Why did this happen? Uh, but for now, of course, a very busy day for security yes, officials. And, and the important thing to leave people with, uh, the, the message from the governor of New York that there are no indications Absolutely. of terrorism after the early reports that it might be that. Important All right, point. Hillary, thank you so much. Thank this you. is CBC's Hillary Johnstone. There was heated debate today in the House of Commons on the updated Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement. The Conservatives voted en masse against the new legislation this week, and leader Pierre Polyev said the bill imposes a carbon tax on the people of Ukraine. The pathological obsession these Liberals have with carbon taxes has now reached a level where it is sick. To impose their destructive carbon tax on the people of Ukraine, to turn down a free trade agreement with a beacon of democracy like Ukraine. What is up with that party? That's what Canadians want to know. And this carbon tax excuse, no one's buying. Roman Waschuk is a Ukraine business ombudsman, a position that works for the Ukrainian government and also a former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine. He joins us now from Toronto. Mr. Waschuk, it's good to speak with you again. Uh, great to talk to you. Help me understand this. Uh, free trade legislation, free trade deals, they're mutually negotiated. Um, but Pierre Polyev is saying that Canada is imposing a carbon tax on Ukraine while they have a knife to their throat. What's the truth of this? Okay, uh, just to note that, of course, I work with but not for the Ukrainian sure, government. Yes. But uh, it, the, the point here being that is a scene, that's a peculiar and kind of disappointing interpretation. Uh, the fact is that, yes, this was a mutually negotiated agreement and that it simply says that both sides will consult on and promote the idea of carbon pricing. Uh, the fact is that Ukraine is uh, in a free trade agreement with the EU. It's big and important neighbor and is in discussions on accession. The EU has, uh, is in the process of imposing a carbon tariff on goods that it imports, on things like steel, how much carbon went into making the steel. So Ukraine already has to factor carbon pricing into its foreign economic activities. 
Right. So Ukraine, is, as I understand it, sir, essentially has four big goals right now. Win the war, rebuild the country, join NATO, and join the European Union. And, and as you've pointed out, uh, carbon pricing, adopting it in some form, is key to that. So this is something that years ago Ukraine has uh, set a, a, as a path for the country, correct? Uh, correct. They've been in discussions on this, and in fact, uh, they're trying to figure out how best to uh, to adapt to it, because they certainly don't want to be priced out of the European market in the short term uh, because of uh, inadequate carbon pricing policies. And ultimately, if accession talks succeed, they'll be part of that carbon pricing arrangement. So what do you make uh, of this political argument we're seeing here in Ottawa and the decision by the Conservatives, who have uh, loudly been supporters of Ukraine, uh, to vote the way they did on, on a free trade agreement uh, like this? Well, it, it seems a rather narrow and not very globally minded uh, approach to what is really a much bigger issue. What do you mean by that? Uh, which part of that is, is a much bigger issue? The much bigger issue is the economic survival of Ukraine. Uh, I've just been in Toronto here attending uh, the Rebuild Ukraine conference with a good representation from Canadian business. A number of big companies are involved already in helping Ukraine uh, redirect its, uh, for example, energy uh, supply situation. Kamiko uh, is now Ukraine's exclusive supplier for uranium. Uh, and others are working on hydro projects. So there's a lot going on. That's the much bigger picture. And taking this very narrow and really kind of stretch interpretation uh, seems driven by, well, certainly not by global geostrategic or geoeconomic considerations. So, but just on this point that the, 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 the argument is that Canada is somehow forcing Ukraine to do this, but I, I guess in a way, I, I even say forcing, because they are a democracy that has chosen this uh, on their own, it would be the European Union rules that have kind of precipitated all of this, right? I mean, can they even join the EU as they hope without moving in this direction? Uh, no, they cannot. Uh, and so that's already part and parcel of Ukrainian policy. So, it, so I think to, to say that uh, this was imposed on Ukraine by Canada with a knife at their throat uh, is dramatic, but uh, quite inaccurate. Okay, there is also some criticism coming from the Conservatives that the Liberals are putting forward this bill on free trade, but it will exclude things like arm exports um, that won't be included in the legislation because there's an argument that Canada should up its military production to help Ukraine in its fight against uh, Putin's Russia. Uh, what's your sense of how that is viewed in Ukraine? What's your thought uh, on that particular aspect? Uh, my uh, understanding is that there are certainly no restrictions placed on arms exports under the free trade agreement. It comes under the general consideration and if you look at Canada's export statistics for year-to-date 2023, two-thirds of Canadian exports to Ukraine are arms and weapon systems. Okay, so is this just a, a House of Commons thing, or is this a real thing? I mean, you've been an ambassador, you know how politics can be. Is this just one of those partisan attack wedge issues, or is this a, a real source of concern between Canada and Ukraine? Uh, I think, you know, Substantively, uh, there was a majority in the House of Commons to pass that piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, to, to that extent, it is moving along. Uh, but it's kind of, as I say, disappointing, disquieting uh, to see the issue instrumentalized uh, for these sort of... Uh, narrow, wedgy-type uh, attacks. I mean, I, I, I certainly think it, it behooves everyone across the partisan divides to take uh, the, the high road 
uh, when it comes to supporting a country that is in Ukraine situation. Roman Waschuk, uh, former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine and the Ukraine business ombudsman, thank you for joining us. I want to apologize for saying you work for the Ukrainian government. <laughs> you are an independent uh, office that works with the Ukrainian government. Uh, thank you for correcting me. I apologize for my error there. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. All those opposed to the motion will please rise. Mr. Scheer. MPs voting to send Bill C-57, the Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement Implementation Act, to committee. Conservatives voted against the deal because it contains language on carbon pricing. Justin Trudeau decided not to go ahead with a trade deal. He decided to go ahead with a carbon tax deal. And I really think that it speaks to how pathologically obsessed Trudeau is with the carbon tax. That he, well, while the knife is at the throat of Ukrainians, he would use that to impose his carbon tax ideology on those poor people. Well, that provoked a pointed response from Liberals today. It's completely absurd. I don't believe Canadians buy into their arguments. It's appalling. It's, it's utterly appalling. And this is part of a larger pattern of, of behavior by the Conservatives, where they don't support Ukraine. All right, we're going to discuss all of this with the Power Panel. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. Jordan Leichnitz is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. Sherelle Evelyn is the Managing Editor of The Hill Times. And Amanda Alvaro is a political commentator. All right, Tim, uh, first, um, we just talked to Roma Waschuk, who was mm -hmm. Canada's ambassador to Ukraine. He's now the business ombudsperson over there, an independent officer uh, that, that handles disputes uh, for Ukrainian businesses and the government. Ukraine agreed to go to carbon pricing when they set and passed their plans to join the European Union. This is something the Democratic government wants. Canada is not imposing it. What do you make of what we've seen on this over the last 24 hours? <laughs> what was Seamus's word there? It's all appalling, David. Yeah. It's all, well, look, the, the, the language both from the Conservative leader and the Liberals in response is a bit too dramatic. So to get to it, I mean, I, I see where the Conservatives may have seen an opening, uh, but sometimes you shouldn't take every opening. I, they saw the opening, I guess, when there was a presentation to committee and one of the global affairs officials said uh, that the carbon pricing mentioned in there was something that was aspirational. Well, saying aspirational to the Conservatives right now is saying, all right, there's the piñata, I can whack at it. Um, I think the Conservative leader and the Conservatives have found that they can make good political points domestically going after this, but... But it's false. But, yeah, but, well, yeah, if you were going yeah. to let me finish, sorry, Mr. Sorry, sorry, I, apologize. I was going to agree <laughs> that, yes, sometimes you can go a little too yeah. far chasing political points at home. I don't think they're really going to suffer too much around this because uh, it's a, a trade agreement and they're making a point. Maybe they're trying to raise some money off of it. Mm. But the danger politically for the conservatives is if you do this all the time, you are going to lose a little bit of credibility. Right. So, so Amanda, on this, right, I mean, Ukraine has four big national objectives right now. To win the war, to rebuild their country, to join NATO, and to join the European mm -hmm. Union. To join the European mm -hmm. Union, you need carbon pricing and Ukraine has agreed to move in that direction as recently as mm -hmm. five, six years ago, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just not true to say that Canada has forced them to do this, right? Yes. I mean, the, the only person who is pathologically obsessed is Polyev himself with his talking points. 
at, at any particular moment on wedge politics. And that's exactly what this is. And in my opinion, it's the worst kind of politics. I mean, th- these are the conditions that the Ukraine government itself has asked for, a country under siege, fighting for its freedom. Uh, these were the conditions. These were the, the policies that they are looking to enact with Canada. To deny them of that is one thing. But beyond that, to actually twist it to your advantage, to use it as a political talking point is the worst kind of politics. And that's exactly what Polyev and the Conservatives did today. So, so Jordan, you know, is this just an opportunity that Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives are seizing on? Or could there potentially be a cost to them for doing something like this? Because you you saw, like, O'Regan is like, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, is almost like the tone. (laughs) But is there a potential (laughs) blowback from this? Sure. This is weird, right? (laughs) Like, they're they're making an issue uh, of a a free trade agreement. Like, we also should remember that Stephen Harper first at first initiated back in 2015. This is, a, this is a free trade agreement that initially came out of a desire of a conservative government to push back Russian influence and support Ukrainians. Mm. Um, and so now to have them argue that this is somehow about some covert way of expanding carbon pricing when on the face of it, it's clearly not true. I think, I think they're just way too deep in the bunker. And I do think this stuff can hurt them because frankly, they just sound offside with where most Canadians are at. It doesn't meet the nod test for most uh, folks who are listening to this. And I think it's also dangerous for them because it opens the door to questions about whether or not they're actually really fully on board in terms of supporting Ukraine. Sherelle, where do you see it? Well, kind of to jump off of Jordan saying, you, in terms of the, where it, what doors it opens, I mean, look down south, south across the border. Um, there are, you know, lots of, there's a lot of movement, especially in the Republican side of the U.S. politics of people pulling back from Ukraine, not wanting to support them, not wanting to invest in, you know, in helping them fight against Russia. So there does become, so it's, so you kind of wonder, is it, is it a risk that they're taking or is, do they see it as a potential opportunity to kind of get that, to kind of get into that side of things? I mean, it is kind of interesting to see the shift in the de- actual debate on this bill um, prior to uh, the uh, October 26th announcement, I believe it was October 26th, of the carve-out for, you know, home right. oil and yeah. things like that. Um, conservatives in the House during second reading debate on this bill had been making, some of them had been making some really thoughtful, um, uh, maybe useful contributions to the debate. They were talking about things that they wanted to see probed further. They were talking about where I thought it might have gone, you know, in terms of uh, wanting to see more in terms of resources and energy exports and things like that. And that might have been the sticking point. But it became, it became very, very clear after that October 26 point of that, no, this is about the carbon price. And then you started hearing uh, some MPs sprinkling the word that, you know, this is a woke bill and things like that. And then it just kind of all fell apart. Mm-hmm. And you just be, and you just knew that, you know, you knew where it was going. And it, they and for some reason, it's like, well, it opened this door for people to say, well, you're not supportive of Ukraine. Yeah, I, I look, I don't think it'll have any immediate damage because uh, I think a lot of their audience will appreciate as um, difficult as the truth may be here, uh, that they have gone after something uh, that has the words carbon pricing in it, and they expect them to do that. But I I think there is a lesson in there 
about learning when to go after the red rag from the bull and learning when to stay away from the bull so you don't get trampled and uh, and they have to they have to learn those lessons I, I don't think there's anything wrong with raising the issue and asking the questions I think if you take it a little too far I'll take a little bit of umbrage with my friend Amanda I mean Pierre Polyev and the Prime Minister sometimes both do that on issues that they believe yield political success for them and when both of them do it it doesn't usually yield the political success that it should no, they look, would like look, it to. Look, I get that. And, and Amanda, in politics, people can go you know, over the line in, in all directions. But on something like this, like you're seeing the political consensus maybe fraying a little bit in the United States when it comes to Ukraine, right? And like the military support for Israel went through the House. They're still struggling uh, on, on what to do in terms of helping uh, President Zelensky and his people. Mm-hmm. But you know, if we start putting into the conversation facts, sorry, things that just aren't true mm-hmm. about Canada's yeah. intentions and Canada's actions when it comes to Ukraine, do, does that not risk undermining the consensus that exists in this country to help them in the fight against Putin? Of course, and that's what becomes so dangerous about it. I mean, it's one thing to to use your talking points or there's a certain amount of, of rhetoric that's involved in politics, and we can all agree that that's what keeps us having a healthy debate. But it is another thing to flat out lie, to allege uh, that it would impose a carbon tax on the people of Ukraine is different than having a a concern or an issue with carbon pricing in, in Canada. To flat out lie about what the treaty is supposed to do undermines their credibility as a party, for sure, but it also starts to see doubt amongst people who are listening, right? If you're listening to those words from somebody who you believe to be a credible source of information, you might start believing them. So I take a a lot of offense when somebody who has the responsibility to Canadians to convey the truth uses an opportunity at the microphone to deliver that kind of untruth. I think that that's scary, dangerous territory. So so Jordan... um you know, words words are important. Former Newfoundland Premier Roger Grimes used to say in the legislature uh, back when I, I was covering his government. And, and, and today, for example, unrelated to this, but to the importance of like being clear and also being cautious, Mr. Polyev's first question today in question period asked the Prime Minister to update on the terror the terrorist attack at the Rainbow Bridge. We just heard from the New York governor, Kathy Hockle, saying there's no evidence of terrorism. It's two local men, two local people, I don't know if they're men or not, who died in this, and everyone take the temperature down. There is an importance to what you say in public. I I measure what I say every day on the air here, and I'm nowhere near as important as the people who hold office. So what's your sense on on the implications of this sort of an approach? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think when it comes to the question of, of how to react when things are unfolding rapidly, uh, it's not a race. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. politicians get it wrong in a rush to be the first to comment. Um, you know, I, I think it's maybe not without coincidence that, that Fox News was also out very early on sure calling was. this a terrorist attack. So, it, you know, it sort of makes you wonder what's on in the uh, in the OLO. But I think, I think that when... Um, 
you know, when incidents like this are unfolding, it's really incumbent upon public officials of all parties to exercise caution. Um, I think it's totally appropriate to ask for an update in the House. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a normal Absolutely. and a, a good thing to do. But I think, it's, you know, it's it's risky to characterize it early on. And, and in this case, he appears to have gotten it wrong. I think every Canadian understands uh, what's at stake when we talk about a potential terrorist attack at the Canada-U.S. border. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but I was immediately thrown back to oh, post 9-11 mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know, the question mm-hmm. of whether uh, attackers might have come from Canada. These are massively consequential uh, issues for security, for trade, um, and for, for Canadian safety. So, yeah, I think you have to be really careful. I think uh, he had a moment today uh, of lack of care, and that should be worrying. Okay, Cheryl, quick last word from you, and we've got to take a break. Well, I would disagree. I mean, I'm a writer. Words mean things. And so we try to use them, you know, in a circumspect fashion. I I did notice in while, you know, Mr. Polyev did try to, you know, give an element of, you know, that statesmanlike behavior in in the House today, he did still also encroach, uh, couch that in, you know, you know, what is the prime minister going to do, pardon me for reading it, uh, to immediately bring home security for Canadians. So he still managed to squeeze his his talking points into it. Thanks to Sherelle, thanks to Jordan, thanks to Tim, and thanks to Amanda. A jury has reached a verdict in the trial of Cameron Ortis. They have found the former RCMP intelligence officer guilty on all six charges against him. Ortis was accused of leaking top-secret information to alleged or suspected criminals for money. And the CBC's Rafi Bujikanian has more from the courthouse. David, as you said, he's been found guilty on all six charges. Four of them were about violating the Security and Information Act. It's the first time a jury has rendered a verdict in a criminal trial related to this act. Of course, Cameron Ortis had access to state secrets, not just to Canada's, but those of its Five Eyes allies, as his former role as an RCMP intelligence officer. Now, he was arrested in 2019 on these charges that he leaked secrets to criminals for money. Uh, The prosecution saying that he was in touch with a BC tech company that was um, getting uh, encrypted phones, selling encrypted phones to criminals, and also that he was in touch with three different individuals who had ties to international money laundering networks. Some of those ties also linked to terror networks. Now, Ortis' defense team never denied those contacts took place, but they said that he was part of a secret investigation on behalf of a foreign agency. Ortis himself testified in court, but often referred to the very act he was uh, charged with violating in saying that he couldn't get into a whole lot of detail. So, for instance, not only did we not know the name of this alleged contact at the foreign agency, we did not know which foreign agency it was either, all because Ortis said he couldn't speak about that. Evidently, the jury ended up not agreeing with the defense's version of the facts. Okay, uh, so Rafi, I think the jury started its deliberations on Monday. We already have a guilty verdict on all counts uh, on Wednesday. What happens now with Cameron Ortis and this, uh, this legal process? 
Yeah, I mean, the defense team does intend to appeal this verdict, and they also tried to argue he should stay out on bail. The Crown disagreed with that, calling Ortis a flight risk. The judge said the bail is revoked, evidently, so Ortis will be in custody now. The judge intends to render a sentence in January. The Crown's been asking for 20 years. It's not clear exactly what the defense will propose uh, in contrast to that, David. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Rafi, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Rafi Bujakani in, in Ottawa. Okay, we're going to get some analysis on the national security implications of this. I'm joined now by Jess Davis, president of Insight Threat Intelligence. So, so Jess, what do you make of the significance uh, of this conviction? This is a really important conviction for the Canadian government. This is the first time the Security of Information Act has really been put to the test in this kind of way, and it signals a very strong message that the government can and will prosecute these kinds of offenses, which has a really strong implication, actually, for the people who are currently leaking information. Uh, we, you know, we saw some Globe and Mail op-eds, we've seen some right. leaked information. Those people have now been told, with under no uncertain terms, that they can be prosecuted and they can be prosecuted successfully. That's an interesting point. I hadn't made that connection because no, I was looking at this in isolation, but the, the, the severity of the breach here that Cameron Ortis is now convicted of having done, contextualize that for us. How significant was uh, what he did? Well, what he did and what he shared was somewhat isolated in terms mm. of the intelligence, but it was the level of access that he had and the relative impunity he seemed to have in terms of sharing that information. And it wasn't all RCMP information, you have to remember, too. This was information from FinTrack and other departments and agencies that he shared with essentially criminal syndicates, criminal organizations, and some alleged criminal individuals. So it was really that sense of impunity that I think mm -hmm. shocked the community. So I, I'm going to touch on that in just a sec. but. You know, when we, we were on the show many times talking about the foreign interference leaks that you referenced right off the top and the implications of that for the, the intelligence community that we cooperate with, the Five Eyes mm -hmm. Partnership, what does something like this do to, to reassure them, uh, you know, on the integrity of intelligence sharing in Canada, or does it rattle them that it got to this point? It's not really so much about reassuring them. It's more about side, keeping our side of the street clean. So right. taking responsibility for things that happen in Canada. The, the reality is, is that... Every country in the world has leakers, has people who sell secrets, has people who you know, maybe share those secrets for uh, moral or ethical reasons. What really matters is what we do with it after the fact. So if we are able to successfully prosecute those individuals, that's what reassures our partners. Not so much that we need to be able to prevent all of it, because that's unrealistic. We're mm -hmm. never going to be able to stop every person who has a malicious intent. But it's really about making sure that when it comes to it, we can take responsibility for that and do the right thing. You mentioned impunity. I, I, I wonder what you make of the defense put forward here by Cameron Ortis, because they, essentially the prosecution says this guy was a dirty agent. He was trying to sell secrets to bad actors for his own gain. And the defense they put on the table is that he was kind of like a double agent who was working to stop the bad actors and acting in the best interest of Canada, though there was no evidence offered that anyone knew that, approved that, and he sort of felt that he could authorize himself to do it. I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, what, what do you make of the defense and, 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 and the implications of that? There are two really interesting things about the defense. The first is the idea that he took it upon himself to essentially become, you know, run a black op, an off-the-books yeah. operation. Yeah. Um, 
which for me was really born of a frustration that I actually share with him or his, you know, as his defense put forward, a frustration with Canada's inability to prosecute criminal syndicates and money launderers, professional money laundering networks. This is something that we've been very, very bad at. And part of his defense was arguing, basically, that the RCMP was going to be incapable of doing this, either out of incompetence or even corruption. And so he took it upon himself to run this off-the-books op. The second part of it is the implausibility of this. So anybody who worked in the security and intelligence world in Canada is going to look at that defense and say, that's completely implausible. There's really no conceivable way in which this happened. Um, where, where my concern was is that the jury is not members of the security and intelligence right. community. And they're so strongly influenced, and there can be so much influence in terms of popular culture. You know, you see movies and, and read books about intelligence agents running, you know, black ops and off-the-book ops, that I worry that that would potentially become a plausible scenario for them. But in this case, it doesn't seem, they don't seem to have bought that defense. Right. So so just as a final point, because, you know, you mentioned that frustration that's out there, and we talked about the foreign interference leakers, uh, which seem to be motivated by a frustration and a lack of action, in their view, uh, by Canada. But now the RCMP is looking into all of that. I I mean, what what are the sort of implications of this for the RCMP and, and their investigation into the, to the leaks around the alleged Chinese interference in Canadian elections? I think the big takeaway here is that the government, the prosecution, was able to put forward a clear and concise argument about the implausibility of that defense right. and also pursue a, a series of very serious charges against someone who was accused of leaking some very secret information. I think everybody who has been involved in sharing intelligence on, in an unauthorized manner is probably looking at that in a very serious way now and, and really wondering what the future holds for them. All right. Jess Davis, always appreciate the time and the insight. That's Jess Davis, president of Insight Threat Intelligence. Well, officials in New York say a car explosion at the Canada-U.S. border near Niagara Falls does not appear to be terrorism. This is video from U.S. Customs and Border Control from the Rainbow Bridge crossing. You can see in the very top of the screen a car rapidly appearing at extremely high speed, then launching into the air before crashing into a checkpoint that's off screen. We sent reporters there to cover the story. I'm joined now by the CBC's Ithil Musa. She is in Niagara Falls, Ontario, with the latest. So, Ithil, uh, what, what is the latest uh, in the story from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I think you you hit hit on it. Uh, the the fact that the preliminary investigation shows that there's really no indication of terrorism being involved uh, uh, with this incident. Uh, New York's governor Kathy Hochul held a breath a uh, uh, press briefing, uh, rather, uh, where she said, you know, just that. Uh, she also spoke to David how challenging this investigation is going to be. She said the car has essentially been incinerated. All that's left uh, is uh, the engine. Um, She did also mention that a person, an individual that was involved in the crash was from Western New York, but, you know, she didn't provide any clarity around whether that was the driver or the passenger. New York Senator Chuck Schumer also tweeted that he has been briefed by the FBI that's taking the lead on this investigation because, of course, this incident happened on the American side of the Rainbow Bridge. He said that they believe that they uh, do have the identity of uh, the driver. Of course, we don't know that uh, uh, who that person is just yet. The motive is still being investigated uh, right now. 
We know that two people that were inside the vehicle are dead. We've also learned this evening that a U.S. Um, border agent uh, received some minor injuries. Uh, a hospital, a medical facility in the United States said that he has uh, since been discharged uh, from there. Uh, here in Canada, we know that the Prime Minister uh, was briefed on, uh, obviously, the situation. Uh, Trudeau says that the Minister of Public Safety the RCMP and the Canada uh, Border Services Agency, they're all cooperating in the investigation. Ontario's Premier Doug Ford has also said that provincial police are providing any support that's needed. So it's a much calmer scene there where you are now than certainly what we saw earlier today and then certainly what the expectations were uh, when this incident initially happened. What are, you, what are you seeing there on the ground in Niagara Falls? Absolutely, David. It is eerily quiet. You know, today is the day before American Thanksgiving, the busiest, uh, one of the busiest uh, travel holidays in the United States. But there are no cars, you know, coming across the Rainbow Bridge. It remains closed, although the other three bridges connecting Ontario and Western New York, they have uh, reopened. Uh, Amtrak has right now temporarily ceased operations uh, from the U.S. into Canada, although Buffalo's airport says that, you know, all systems ago, everything is uh, working there so people can travel in and out of the Buffalo airport, although people should expect that there will be extra security screenings as well as cars that are going to be going into the Buffalo airport, they will uh, receive extra security checks uh, as well. So, yeah, things are very, very quiet. It's, it's expected that uh, the Rainbow Bridge will probably remain closed tomorrow. We're hearing maybe closed for two days. Uh, right now, though, uh, we don't know. Okay, Ithel, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ithel Musa. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.